The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter, verses 20 and 21. Verses 20 and 21 in the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. But you have not so learned Christ? If so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. Now, as we began to see last Sunday morning, the apostle here, having given his alarming and terrifying description of the life of the unconverted pagan Gentile here turns over and looks at these Gentiles who had become Christians. And as we saw, he emphasizes the great contrast between them. But you, he says, that's not your life any longer. That's no longer a description of you. That's no longer your position. You have been translated, delivered out of that, and put into another realm and into another kingdom, which presents a complete contrast. And so we saw that here, incidentally, the apostle does give us a very wonderful definition of the Christian, that he is a man thus who is entirely different from the non-Christian, and shows that. He's a man who's aware of that. And as we saw, the non-Christian is also equally aware of the difference. We proved that, you remember, from John Bunyan's account of Vanity Fair in Pilgrim's Progress, where the big point he makes is that the moment these Christian pilgrims arrived in Vanity Fair, not only did they feel that they were strangers, but all the people of Vanity Fair recognize them at once as being essentially different. Now, that's the kind of thing which the apostle says here, reminding us that to become a Christian means that we have undergone the profoundest operation that ever takes place in the whole of the universe. To be a Christian means that we are born again, born of the Spirit, born from above that we are partakers of the divine nature, that we are new creations. That is essentially the New Testament definition of what a Christian man really is. Well, now then, says the apostle, there you are, but you, you're no longer there, you're here. Well, now, what, what, is, what has brought this to pass? Uh, what is it that uh, accounts for this uh, tremendous contrast, this essential change? Well, here the apostle immediately answers the question himself. And first of all, in the 20th verse, he puts it, as it were, as a whole. In the two words, learned Christ. But you have not so learned Christ. And then in the 21st verse, he analyzes the expression learned Christ and puts it in detail, so that there shall be no doubt or question at all about this. 
Uh, it's a kind of parenthesis. You have not so learned Christ. A dash? Assuming that you have heard him and that you have been taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, this verse 21, I say, is really an exposition of verse 20. The apostle is very fond of adopting that particular method. He states the thing as a whole, then he divides it up for us in order that we are quite clear in our minds as to what he's saying. Well, let's follow him and look at the very terms that he implies. Uh, now he says, you, you are no longer there. You are here. Well, why? Well, because you have learned Christ. What does he mean by this? Both the terms are important, but let us see this immediately. This is always the key to the Christian life. This learning Christ. In other words, uh, Christianity is not a, a vague, indefinite, nebulous kind of feeling or experience. Patently, it is something which uh, can be defined and can be described. It is primarily a matter of knowledge. Now that's the thing that obviously comes out here. He says, you were there, but you're no longer there. You're here now. Why? Ah, well, because of that marvelous experience you had. That isn't what he says. He says, it's because you have learned Christ. Christianity is primarily and essentially a matter of knowledge. It's uh, the knowledge to which these people had come. And, of course, he's bound to put it like this in a sense because, as we've seen so clearly, the real trouble, he says, with the people who are not Christians is that uh, their minds are darkened. You remember how he kept on emphasizing that? That is their essential trouble. Their real trouble is in their minds, in their understanding. Very well. Obviously, therefore, a Christian is a man who primarily and most essentially has got something in the realm of understanding. Learned Christ. Now, this is, this is a tremendously important point because we are living in an age which doesn't like this emphasis as we know. The whole trouble, it seems to me today, in the church and in the world is that this is not given the priority that it should have and that people are saying, oh, well, as long as a man loves Christ or loves God, it's always put in terms of sentiment. Whereas in the New Testament, the whole emphasis is always upon knowledge. It is learning. It is understanding. Now then, let's consider what he means by this term, this learned, ye have not so learned Christ. Now, there they were before. They were in this condition. Their understandings were darkened. They were alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that was in them and coupled with that the hardness of their hearts but now says the apostle all that has been overcome and you have a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ now you remember how frequently he uses this very phrase in writing to Timothy in his first epistle in the second chapter 
He puts it like this. It is the will of God that all men be saved and come unto a knowledge of the truth. That's how he defines being saved. Come to a knowledge of the truth. See, it's the same thing always, everywhere. The Christian is a man, therefore, by definition, whose eyes have been opened. The trouble with the other men, again, as this apostle puts it in the second epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 4, he says, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest they believe the glorious gospel of Christ. They're blinded. They can't see. The devil puts a veil, as it were, before them, and they can't see through it. There is this wonderful truth. They're looking at it, but they don't see it. They're blinded by the God of this world. But now, says the apostle, you are no longer like that. Those people are ignorant of certain things, but your eyes have been opened. This is what's made you Christians. This is what's moved you from where you were to where you are. Your eyes have been opened to what? Well, first and foremost, to your own estate and condition. And that is obviously the first thing that must happen to any man who becomes a Christian. He'd been living this worldly life, following the crowd, doing what everybody else does, trying to persuade himself it was wonderful. Oh, he may have read his Bible occasionally, or he may have been taken ill, and people may have spoken to him about these things, yet they meant nothing to him. He was irritated, annoyed by them, saw nothing in them. Now, the first thing that happens to such a person is, he begins to examine the position. His eyes begin to be opened to his own state and condition to the condition of the world, of the society in which he finds himself. And he begins to ask questions. He begins to say to himself, well, is this going on forever? Is this going to last? What's the real value of this? He'd never thought about that before. If he was a little bit unhappy before, he plunged into more pleasure. If troubles came, he turned his back on them, tried to drown them. But suddenly he finds himself facing these things. And asking himself certain questions, what does a man do with himself when he's lost his health or lost his money or when he's lost a loved one, bereavement and sorrow? What does a man, what's happening to a man when he's on his deathbed? Where, where is he going? What lies beyond? He begins to consider all these questions. Now then his eyes are being opened and he sees the utter folly and futility of his old position. He says, this is madness. I'm not thinking. I'm not facing facts. I'm not facing life. I'm acting on assumptions. I'm not facing the big and the eternal issues. He begins to look at them and to examine them. And he sees, of course, that he's in a very hopeless and perilous condition. And then, of course, he begins to think about his relationship to God. And he realizes something about the being and the nature and the character of God. And he sees his utter hopelessness and helplessness again. And then he begins to see the meaning of the gospel. He's learning Christ. He begins to see that Christ is the Messiah. He's the deliverer. He's the one who has come into the world in order to deal with people in Vanity Fair. 
and to get them out of that vanity of their minds in which they were walking and to take them out and put them into his own kingdom and introduce them to this other realm. Now that is what is meant, as you see, by learning Christ. He puts it generally first. If you like, we can put it like this. The Apostle Peter, in his first epistle in chapter 3, has a phrase like this. He says you must be ready at all times to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, uh, the only man who can give a reason for the hope that is in him is a man who understands why there is a hope in him. You don't give a reason for the hope that is in you by just saying, you know, I used to be very miserable, I'm now happy. That doesn't explain anything. Because a man may say to you, ah, well, of course, you say that and you say that that is because you're a Christian. But yesterday I was talking to a Christian scientist who denies most of what you believe and he said the same thing. And then I met a man before who wasn't either of these things. He really was just a bit of a psychologist and he said that he'd found this marvelous release by what he called positive thinking. So you don't give a reason for the hope that is in you by just saying that you feel better than you once felt. No, no, before you can give a reason, you must be able to give explanations. You must have understanding, and that means knowledge. It means that you must have learned something. And that's why the apostle puts it like this. You have learned Christ. It is indeed this wonderful knowledge of him and the knowledge concerning him. Now that is the thing, I repeat, which makes us Christians at all. And if we don't know what we believe this morning, how can we be Christians according to this definition? Ye have not so learned Christ. Now this is the astounding thing, says the apostle to these Ephesians, that has happened to you. That whereas you were in that gross darkness with that obdurate, hardened heart, None of these things could touch you or penetrate. The whole position is entirely changed. You've got the knowledge and the learning and your heart is softened. You've got a heart of flesh and it can move. How has it all happened? Well, there's only one explanation. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Nothing else, nobody else can do this but the Holy Spirit. But that is his special that is his peculiar work. It is he alone who can remove the veil. Oh, the perfect exposition of this, of course, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where the apostle points out that even the princes of this world didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. For he argues, had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But... God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For we have received, he says in the twelfth verse of that same chapter, we have received not the Spirit that is of the world, but the Spirit that is of God. That in order that we may know the things that are freely given to us of God. This work, you see, is the work of the Holy Spirit, of necessity. Everything the Apostle has been saying about the 
godless, evil, sinful life makes this an absolute necessity. Nothing but the, the Holy Spirit can enlighten this darkness, soften the heart, and enable the truth to penetrate and to grip and to master the person. But it does, and the Holy Spirit does this. Did you notice those wonderful terms that the Apostle John implied in that uh, statement, two statements which he has in that first epistle of his that we read just now in the second chapter in verses 20 and 27? Listen to him. He says, But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. Here is an old man like John at the end of his life writing to these young Christians, and they were very ordinary people. Most of them were probably slaves. And he is going to leave them, but he leaves them, he knows, with these antichrists, these false teachers surrounding them and propagating their pernicious doctrines. What is his comfort? Well, he says, this is the only comfort. You have the, an unction from the Holy One, and you know all things. And then he repeats it in verse 27. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but that same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth and no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Now this is the most glorious thing we can ever realize together. It is not primarily, therefore, a man's natural ability that matters. That mustn't be discounted. But to become a Christian does not depend upon one's natural ability and understanding. I say thank God for that. If it were a matter of accepting or understanding a philosophical teaching, well, what an unequal salvation it would be. People gifted with brains and understanding and who have the leisure to read and who have had the training, the academic training would be in an entirely advantageous position. And there would be very little hope for the busy housewife or the man who hasn't natural ability and who's never had any teaching or training or education. Thank God that isn't God's way of saving people. That would be utterly unfair and unjust. It wouldn't be an equitable way of, of dealing with the situation. But God's way, you see, is quite different. No man, whatever his understanding, can really accept and believe and grasp this in and of himself. But on the other hand, the Holy Spirit of God can give the understanding to anybody. It doesn't matter how ignorant or how illiterate. He can give an insight and this anointing, this unction, which he is able to give. And it opens the understanding and the mind. And the history of the church is full of this kind of thing. How some of the simplest, most illiterate people have had a knowledge of the truth which some of the greatest brains have lacked. Not only that, sometimes it has been the case that a simple illiterate person has been enabled to lead a great brain into a knowledge of the truth because of this unction and anointing. Well, now this is what is meant by learning Christ. Coming to this wonderful and blessed knowledge, 
That is the thing, I say, that has accounted for the moving of these Ephesians from the old position to the new position. It's the explanation of the but. And this is something that you'll find running right through the scriptures. Take the case of the first convert, in a sense, in the continent of Europe, Lydia. You remember what we are told about Lydia in Acts 16 and in verse 14. Paul joined that prayer meeting of the women in Philippi on the Sunday afternoon. He sat down to them and he preached unto them, spake unto them the word of the Lord. And then we are told about this woman, Lydia, a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. And this is what we are told, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things that were spoken of Paul. That's the thing, this attending. If the Lord hadn't opened her heart, she wouldn't have attended. As there are so many people, they hear the word, they don't attend to it. It means nothing. It bounces off them because of the hardness of their hearts. But now, whose heart the Lord opened, the softening, the preparation. And once the heart was opened, she attended unto the things that were spoken of Paul. And so was saved and became a Christian. It is always the work of the Holy Spirit. But let us look at the other term. Ye have not so learned Christ. Now, why does he put it like this, you think? Well, this is surely something that, he's do that he does very deliberately. In order to impress upon us that the knowledge which this man has obtained, who has become a Christian, is indeed a knowledge of Christ. Let me put it negatively. Now, why is it that this man who once uh, walked after the vanity of his mind and who, being past feeling, had given himself over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness, why has he stopped doing that? Why is he now a saint in the church? What is it? What is the knowledge that has come to him? Well, I'm emphasizing negatively that it isn't a mere knowledge of morality and of ethics. Oh, you take any of these great phrases you like. The apostle has got his tremendous list in the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 6. Let me read from verse 9. Know ye not, he says, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified, in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There they were, like these people at Ephesus. That's the sort of life they were living, guilty of these horrible, foul, bestial things. But they're no longer doing them. Why? Well, because they've learned something. And what have they learned? Is it morality and ethics? Never. Not the teaching of morality and ethics alone has never been capable of changing such people. And that is why this must be emphasized with all the power that one can command and all the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The thing the Christian man has learned is not morality and ethics. Why did that drunkard cease to be a drunkard? Was it because temperance lecturers had convinced him of the evil effects of alcohol? What a monstrous suggestion it is. The mere knowledge of the consequences of sin have never been capable of restraining men from sin. It is men who know all about this who are sometimes most guilty of these things. Why? Well, because their desire is stronger than their knowledge and their learning. No, no, this isn't morality. It isn't the knowledge of morality or of ethics. It is Christ they've learned. But let us put it like this. What these people have learned is not merely and not only that their sins are forgiven. That's a wonderful knowledge, isn't it? But you know, if the gospel merely informed us and told us that our sins were forgiven in the death of Christ, it wouldn't deliver men from these horrible, terrible things which had been holding these Ephesians captive. No, they would rather have said it's all right. Uh, it doesn't matter how much we sin, it's all going to be forgiven. The love of God is so great and so wonderful. Uh, well, then I'll continue in sin. It's all right, it'll all be blotted out. There's nothing more terrible than the teaching which says that the gospel is just an announcement of the forgiveness of sins. Thank God. It is an announcement of the forgiveness of sins, but it isn't only that, it isn't merely that. That's the apostle's whole point here. You have not so learned Christ as to say, it's all right, it's a kind of insurance policy. I can do what I like, I'm covered. You haven't so learned Christ, he says, surely. But let me add another negative. The learning which has come to these people is not merely a learning about doctrine and theology, in a purely intellectual and theoretical manner. And I want to emphasize that equally. If our knowledge of these things is merely intellectual and theoretical, it is of no value to us at all. It, indeed, it may be a curse to us. I remember a man under the influence of drink arguing with me about the doctrine of the atonement. Theology was his great interest, the passion of his life. He was a great student of the Bible. But that isn't to be Christian. That isn't what is meant by learning Christ. Let's make no mistake about this, my friends. This knowledge, this learning of doctrine and of theology is not only important, it is, as I'm saying, essential. A man can't be a Christian without a modicum of doctrine. He doesn't know what he believes otherwise. But I say this, that you can have it in your mind, you can have it in theory, and it'll be no value to you at all. It's outside you. It hasn't moved you. It hasn't gripped your life. It hasn't changed you. It hasn't made you more and more conformable to the pattern and the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he doesn't say that they have merely learned the theory of the doctrines. They haven't come to an academic acquaintance of these great and thrilling and wonderful intellectual truths. Oh, we must never separate these things. I repeat again what I've said so frequently in the last months, that a mere knowledge of doctrine which doesn't lead to a new life is of the devil. These things must never be separated. 
And we must always be on our guard at this point. The devil is an angel of light. is very ready to get people interested in doctrine. If that means that their lives are going to be unaffected. If they can become harsh and hard and intolerant in that way, he'll encourage them to read and to study doctrine and theology. So it isn't only that. The apostle puts it quite plainly. Ye have not so learned Christ. Christ himself. It means a knowledge, a personal knowledge of the Savior. The apostle puts it quite plainly. Ye have not so learned Christ. Christ himself. It means a knowledge, a personal knowledge of the Savior. That is the end of all doctrine. And if an increasing doctrine, knowledge of doctrine, doesn't bring us to an increasing knowledge of the blessed person himself, there's something radically wrong. And if it doesn't have a corresponding effect, I say, upon our conduct and behavior, there is equally something radically wrong. No, no, it is a knowledge of Christ himself as the Savior, as the Deliverer, as the Messiah, as the one who came into this world to destroy the works of the devil, as the one who came into this world to redeem us from all iniquity and to separate unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. In other words, he means here by using the comprehensive term. Everything that is true of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior, he himself and all he does. That is what he means by learning Christ. Well, very well. There we've looked at it in general. But let us look at it as he subdivides it. And here he introduces it, as I pointed out at the beginning of verse 21, with this quaint expression, if so be. We must be clear about the meaning there. He doesn't mean for a moment that he's uncertain about them or uncertain of their knowledge. He's already told them in chapter 1 that they've got it. He means by if so be, assuming that, assuming that. He says, now, on the assumption that you really have heard him and that you've been taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, he wants to, he wants to make this quite plain, I say, so he divides it up for them. And we can best look at it like this. What does learning Christ really mean? Well, I think the best way of approaching it is to start with the thing that he puts last. It means that we have a knowledge of the truth as it is in Jesus. It means in the second place that we really have heard that and heard him. And it means in the third place that we really have been taught in him. Now let's look at them. The first thing is that we have this knowledge of the truth as it is in Jesus. The truth as the truth is in Jesus. Now, surely we all must at once be arrested by a very interesting change which the apostle has introduced here. 
He first of all says, ye have not so learned Christ. Now he talks about the truth as it is in Jesus. Why not Christ again? Why Jesus? Why say Christ in verse 20, but Jesus in verse 21? Again, there is in that difference a most profound truth which we ignore and neglect at our great peril. What, is, what does he mean by this? Why does he change from Christ to Jesus? This is what I would call the particularity of the gospel. This is what he's really saying, that we must not think of salvation again in some loose, vague terms. We mustn't uh, talk about some great cosmic Christ that exerts an influence upon men in this world. Uh, the whole, we mustn't just stop at the idea of salvation and hold on to salvation as an idea and as a concept and as a thought. No, no. He says you must think it all out always in terms of Jesus. Now this apostle of all men is fond of using the full term, the Lord Jesus Christ. But here he says, as the truth is in Jesus. Why? Well, I say for this good reason. That the Christian is not saved by a philosophy of redemption. He is saved by that historic person, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God. Ah, here is a very great and a very real danger. You see, it's one thing to hold on to the notion of forgiveness, the, the notion of renewal, the, the, the notion of divine life. You can hold on to all that without the Lord Jesus Christ. But the apostle is not going to let us do that. He says, what is this knowledge of Christ? Well, it is the truth as it is in Jesus. In other words, you're tied right to your New Testament. You're tied to your four Gospels. And you see, that's why they were given. There was Christian pre preaching and people became Christian before we had these four Gospels. And before uh, these epistles were printed and circulated. Well, why did they ever come into being? Oh, I'll tell you why they came into being. Because the devil came in at once and he tried to turn these great facts into mere ideas and into mere theories and thereby their real meaning was evacuated. So the apostle says that the knowledge of Christ is the truth that is in Jesus, as it is in Jesus. And there I say once more, we are brought face to face with this most profound truth about Christianity, that it is a faith that belongs to history, and thereby it differs from every religion. All religions are just ideas. Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, take any one you like. They're all teachings, they're all ideas, and they say that if you just accept them and follow them and put them into practice, that you'll be helped and your life will be changed and so on. That isn't Christianity at all. Christianity is an announcement of certain facts and events which have taken place in history. And that our salvation is based upon those that in the fullness of the times God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. The historic Jesus of Nazareth, he's essential. 
It isn't my application of his teaching that saves me. It's he that saves me. So I am tied to the truth as it is in Jesus. And what does he mean by this? Well, he means a number of things which we can't deal with this morning, but I will just mention the first because it is the big one in a sense, and it is this. He says the truth as it is in Jesus, or as the truth is in Jesus. And he means by that that the truth is only in Jesus, and it's nowhere else. Now, in saying that, of course, the apostle is but saying what he's very fond of saying, and which he says, for instance, in writing to the Colossians, in these words. I would, I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Listen that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God, and of the Father, and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There it is. It is in Christ Jesus that are hid all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. All the truth is in Jesus, and there is no truth outside Jesus. Everything is in him. He alone is the truth. All the apostles taught that. You remember how we are told in the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, how Peter and John were put on trial by the authorities because they'd healed that lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple. They were tried for that and because they were preaching this Jesus. And uh, there they are. And this is, you remember the reply that was made by Peter. He says, this is the stone that was set at naught of you builders that has been made the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. The truth is in Jesus. The whole truth is in Jesus. There is no truth apart from the truth that is in Jesus. And he said it himself once and forever. You'll find it in John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, that's exactly what the apostle is saying at this point here. You are what you are, he says, because you've learned Christ. And what is to learn Christ? Well, it is to come to the knowledge of the truth, which is in Jesus. God forbid, I say again, that we should ever separate our doctrine from the person. God forbid that we should become academic and theoretical and detached. 
and ever forget for a second that salvation has come in a person, in this particular person, Jesus, in whom God has stored, as it were, all the treasures of his own wisdom and his own knowledge. Well, there we have to leave it this morning, but we must go on with this, because this is the thing that makes a man a Christian, you see. This is the thing that delivers a man and changes his whole condition and takes him out of the world and its vanity of mind puts him into the Christian church and makes him a child of God and an heir of glory and of everlasting bliss. Have you learned Christ? Do you know whom you have believed? Do you know him? And do you in addition know what you have believed? Can you give a reason for the hope that is in you. The man who has learned Christ can do so. He knows him and he knows the truth as it is in Jesus. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.